0: Good morning, welcome to Fuzzy Logic today here on Two X. Thank you, Declan and Christy, for Irish Voice this morning. Well, we've got some pretty fun things coming up today. We've had a great time over the last few weeks talking to various scientists. And to kick off this one, it's kind of a handy thing that there is a This Day in Science event because died on the 1st of August, 1799, born 6th of January, 1745, was well, Jacques Mongeffier and he was the ballooning French the French ballooning pioneer who with his brother Joseph Michel Goffier developed the hot air balloon and conducted the first untethered flights. An initial experiment with a balloon of taffeta filled with smoke was given to a public demonstration on the 5th of June 1783. And we've covered the story before on Fuzzy Logic. And I'm pretty sure I remember Alice saying that when they landed uh, that the locals thought they were some kind of witches or something and they had to do a bit of fancy footwork to avoid getting mugged by the locals because uh, the flight carrying three animals and passengers was on the 19th of December 1783 and it was witnessed by King Louis the XV-1, whatever number that is. And on the 21st of November their balloon carried the first two men which was in fact, the probably the one I 'm referring to, where they got <laughs> they thought we were about to get mugged, so last week, I interviewed on the phone Robert Brand and he 's been working on amateur high altitude balloon projects, and he's myself interviewing Robert a couple of days ago be working for the government or can you be a motivated individual maybe working for a company today i'm interviewing robert brand who is the the head of innovation at plus comms and the director of communications navigation and data for a company called team stellar lunar project and welcome to fuzzy logic robert
1: nice to be back
0: Yes, welcome back. Now, you've been uh, mucking around with balloons 30 kilometres, I believe. Tell us the story. What have you been doing?
1: Well,. Demonstration flight uh, for science week my son and i launched a balloon at albury and uh, we tracked it during the day and we're giving lessons to uh, high school and uh, primary school students um, about how to do balloon launches and what it's like up there in the upper atmosphere and uh, this balloon tracked from albury uh, right across the very top of the submarine at at, uh, holbrook and uh, then over more to the east and went right over the old Apollo uh, 11 Honeysuckle Creek site uh, and then landed just to the east of uh, Michelago, just near the highway between Canberra and and Cooma, and landed there. And uh, yes, it made it up to 30 plus kilometres, which is actually a record for us, but... Um, we've not ever been trying for altitude records yet, but some people do get their balloons up to 40 kilometres, and we'll be doing that uh, later on in the year.
0: 40 kilometres—that's a—that's a fair way up. What does the balloon look like? Is it? How, how, what sort of diameter is the balloon itself? First of all. <laughs>
1: Well, the last one we launched we didn't have a very big payload, so we were able to just put up about one cubic metre of uh, helium in a balloon, so it's not very big, Uh, it wouldn't even be a metre wide, and that uh, balloon weighs about 350 grams and the payload weighed far less so we just had a little tracker with a couple of AA batteries on board and we watched it flying across the landscape during our lessons which was really amazing for people to actually see a balloon in flight if you can call it seeing it. uh, You can see where it is above the uh, Google Uh, Earth landscape
0: This thing basically just floats up under the sky and you watch it disappear and then it's at the mercy of the winds so I guess you must have had a fair idea where it was going to head when it went
1: Well we knew it uh, would head to the east given the uh, prevailing winds in the jet stream, Uh, they tend to be pretty constant this time of year Uh, They get light only two times a year, but they can get up to nearly 300 kilometres an hour. Uh, But we only managed to get about 130 k on this uh, flight. The balloon doesn't feel much. I mean, it's just sitting in the air mass, floating along. It, It doesn't know the air mass is moving that fast. Um, but eventually it pops out into the stratosphere, and then at that stage it actually slows right down and, and moves to the south uh, right now. I mean, we aren't sure what's happening up there until it pops into the upper atmosphere, and we can see the, uh, the progress, the speed, and everything else. Mm. So uh, that happens at about 20 kilometres up, and uh, it, it's really unusual because the temperature up there is a lot warmer than it is lower down in the uh, jet stream.
0: Ah, so what, what, what happens to a balloon at that altitude? It must expand enormously? Oh well, then... yes,
1: I forgot the expansion, yes. Uh, we we see expansions of up to four metres or five metres and then eventually it, it explodes like, uh, like, it turns into uh, something that resembles uh, spaghetti, it's not just a pop like a normal party balloon and it's all intact, it, it just goes into stringy pieces. Amazing to see the videos of uh, the the ones blowing up
0: yes it will. i'm looking forward to seeing it because next weekend we're going to go out there and we're going to find this thing out near michelego now what was it carrying what was the payload
1: well, in this case, we weren't intending to recover the payload because it was going to track out over the, the mountains and uh, forests, and we launched it from Albury. Normally, we launch way further west if we're carrying cameras on board and other payloads. Uh, we've done a lot of work freezing yoghurt in the clouds. That was a massive job for a television commercial.
0: Frozen yoghurt?
1: Uh, frozen yoghurt, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think we had 40 people on that uh, trip out to the west for the to launch it and uh, recover the frozen yogurt, um, and it was frozen in the jet stream at temperatures of about minus 40 to minus 50 C. And uh, that was just fun. It was it wasn't really science at all, but it involved science to get the balloons up there, track them, and to uh, even measure the temperatures while in flight. So uh, all of that was being sent back by telemetry as it was flying along. Or we had something like uh, ten different launches, or more, twelve, twelve different flights.
0: So this this, this particular one, did you say, it just has a GPS tracker, and that was yeah. basically
1: it? So, this one had no cameras, just a GPS tracker, and uh, that was what we were doing because uh, it would have cost more to find this thing and a lot more petrol than uh, the tracker was worth so we didn 't intend uh, picking it up from all well it
0: 's just good luck that it 's landed not too far from where I live, so I can shoot out there on Saturday now. What, what are you going to learn from this one, or is it really just a demonstration for Science Week?
1: Well, it was Demonstration for Science Week and uh, we had an ex-minister, Barry Jones, and uh, quiz person extraordinaire from the past. I remember him when I was a kid, watching him on uh, Bob Dyer's Pick-A-Box. But uh, he met my son Jason and uh, he said, look, it was never going to land in Canberra because if it had gone over Canberra, all the hot air would have kept it from falling down. <laughs> <though it were. laughs> um, so at the time of the election now,
0: there's no shortage of that.
1: Yes, and unfortunately there's not much science in this election, which uh, is a bit of a shame. I don't like talking about politics and, and science, but it's notable by its absence. Mm. Uh, it's most unfortunate that I'd like to see uh, a bit more science in the future for kids and uh, for Australia in general. But- this payload, I mean it's it's simply so close to the highway and it's on a, a bit of land that obviously has been grazed by sheep and with Google Earth we can't quite see the blades of grass but we can sure get down and, and close to it.
0: So, so when I go out across the paddock there, what, what will it look like? It'll just be a little package of some sort?
1: Well it, it should look like uh, a burst balloon and, and this was a 350 gram balloon so there'll be a lot of it um, if you pick it up it often looks like uh, a um, a jellyfish hmm. you 've got the the neck of it and the, the body of it uh, near the neck where it's thicker and then you 've got all the strings dangling down and then after about fifteen meters of uh, very thin nylon um, Uh, string Uh, we have a bubble wrapped uh, payload and seriously that's all you have to do put a bit of bubble wrap around your payload and it keeps nice and warm and when we were tracking we actually had internal and external temperature measurements going on so we've already got back the scientific data which is radiated back every 20 seconds and uh, forms the basis of uh, a lot of what we understand about what's going on up there. uh,
0: Now, I recall you saying that you could go onto a website and track some of these things.
1: Yes, that certainly is the case. In fact, you can see where we've tracked by going into a website called APRS.FI and uh, putting in our call sign which was vk2 urb-7 and uh, you'll see where we've been tracking you'll have to also say that you want the tail to be uh, six hours or more so with those couple of bits of information you could actually go and uh, have a look at our flight and uh, even put the cursor over the tiny dots that are all the telemetry readings and, and just see the uh, TI temperature internal and TE temperature external and see all the things that are happening to uh, our payload as it was floating around in the upper, uh, upper atmosphere now f- 30k that's almost a third of the way to space so you can never get a balloon into space but uh, wow we can go a long way up towards space and that Yes, it's that's,
0: that's quite impressive isn't it because uh, I think a jet airliner running at about 10,000 metres is that right?
1: Yes, yes uh, 40,000 feet and uh, so yeah 12 12 kilometers up uh, around about that height And when you're flying, you've got to realize that 80% of the atmosphere is below you and only 20% above you. So uh, you you really have the bulk of it right underneath you. And when you think about that, that's not very uh, comforting to think that most of the Earth's atmosphere is just that thin bit of blue up to about 12 kilometers. Mm. And uh, very scary to think everything we pollute has to end up in, in that little thin blue around the earth, very (laughs) scary.
0: Yes. Now, did you have to get special permission to be launching your balloon with the air aviation people?
1: Yes, uh, definitely. Uh, we have uh, a good relationship with CASA, and we have to follow the regulations, so that's the Civil Aviation Safety Authority, and we follow the regulations that are in the uh, Civil Aviation uh, uh, Regulatory um, Code, so basically they define balloons and how to launch them and that. And, We actually launched uh, just above the airport. We were were a safe distance away, according to the regulations. But because we actually launched right under the circuit, we had to coordinate with air traffic at Albury to make sure that we didn't release it early or late, and we actually released it between aircraft flights. Uh, We gave them the code, we gave them the tracking information so they are actually able to watch it and know when it was clear of aircraft as well.
0: Oh, a bit of retro music here on 2XX. You're listening to the Fuzzy Logic Science Show, so I thought we might make a little detour at this point and go off to Parks instead. Now, if you watched Catalyst this week on the ABC, you would have seen an episode where they talked about the origins of the universe and is the universe created for we humans or something similar. Well, John Sarkissian appeared on that, and he is a technical guy who's in charge of a lot of the instrumentation out there at Parks. And he worked as a consultant on the script for that great movie, The Dish, which we bought a copy of that, and we're going to watch that at home later tonight. Well, what a beautiful, beautiful blue sky it is here today out at the no, parks. No, that's not. And uh, we're standing under this enormous dish. It's really imposing. It's the park
2: radio telescope and i'm with john sarkissian here what's your role here at parks okay i'm an um, operation scientist at the csro parks radio telescope my role here is to look after the visiting astronomers and to make sure the telescope's working for them that they get the best possible data from their their time here i'm also involved in various um, pulsar timing projects and do um, research in pulsars and also you know other outreach activities and things i love to talk about astronomy and the the work we do here at the telescope it's a passion of mine.
0: Yes your enthusiasm really shines through and pulsars we'll get into some of the dirty detail about pulsars (laughs) later on perhaps
2: but uh, before we go inside and the the dish itself can you describe it for us? Yeah the 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 Parks telescope is um Um, a 64 metre diameter dish antenna Um, it was commissioned back in October 1961 and originally was meant to only have a lifetime of about 20 years or so Um, but of course it's now, we're we're getting up to 52 years now of operation and with the new recent upgrades um, to the telescope that now allow us to remotely control the telescope over the internet um, and plus all the other new equipment we've installed and, and commissioned recently the telescope will probably still be operating rating at a very high level for, for several decades to come.
0: And you were saying that the sensitivity of it has been
2: improved enormously by changes that you've uh, implemented on it. That's right. The The Parkes Telescope today is about a thousand times more sensitive than when it was built back in 1961. And the reason for that is because um, we've, over the years, um, upgraded the, the dish surface so that um, over, you know, we've progressively replaced the inner 55 metres of steel wire mesh panels with uh, um, perforated aluminium panels and that's made the telescope more sensitive at the higher frequencies. Also in 1995-1996 we replaced the old focus cabin little room at the apex of the telescope with uh, uh, a new focus cabin which is double the size and weight of the old cabin and that's meant that we could put many more, rece- install many more receivers up at the focus and just by pressing a button in the control we can move any one of those receivers very quickly onto the fro- focus um, within about thirty seconds or so and so we can observe at a much greater range of frequencies than we could in the past and do that very more efficiently so the telescope is more frequency agile as a result but in addition to to those um, at the the, the, the upgrades uh, I mean if you, if you can if you have an old photograph of the, of the telescope and compare it to the way it looks now, it's essentially recognisable as the same instrument, but what's really changed is, is all the inside bits. Today it's fully computer controlled, um, we have um, cryogenically cooled receivers, we have fibre optic lines um, to send the data all over the place and um, nothing, and so it's totally unrecognisable from when it was originally built, all the inside bits.
0: I, I imagine in the original
2: days it was all valves and things like that, and these days it would Chips and, and so on. That's right. You know, in the old days, the, the valves would blow every few days, and they'd have to replace them. And they had a big stock of valves. <laughs> so you're not you're not wrong of that. And um, and the reliability has has, has improved com- enormously as a result of the new upgrades. In fact, one of the computers that we have here is over 30 years old. It's an old PDP 11 computer. And I think in the time that I've been here, the 17 years that I've worked here, I've only ever had to reboot the the um, the the, the computer a handful of times um, it's just so totally reliable we've totally debugged it and oh, it's it's a
0: beautiful installation and we're gonna go inside and have a look now and so let's go and have a look okay just follow me yeah And uh, yes, we'll come back to that. Uh, That was John Sarkissian at Parks Observatory. And we'll repeat, we'll go back to the bit of the interview that we did from inside the telescope itself. But first I want to go back to the audio I was trying to play earlier and this is of the balloon recovery that I went on, uh, the trip I went on yesterday out of the paddock near Michelago. Well it's a beautiful sunny day out here in Canberra and while all you lot are doing that boring voting stuff, I've already voted, I'm heading south. I have a particular interest in this grid coordinates, 35 degrees, 42.54 minutes south, 149 degrees, 11.46 minutes east. And what's out there you say? It's a high altitude balloon payload. Well, that's the theory anyway as long as it's still there. It's sitting in the middle of a paddock about a couple of kilometers east of Michelago. so we're gonna knock on the farmers door and say guess what you might have a balloon payload sitting in your paddock. Let's go and see what we can find. Now I've just arrived in Michelago. And the balloon that we're looking for, one that was launched a couple of weeks ago as part of National Science Week by Robert Brand and his son Jason, who we interviewed recently. And the balloon was launched from Albury, and it got as high as about 30 kilometres up into the air. It drifted across the snowy mountains, and then it burst eventually and dropped back down here to Earth at Michelago. And it all being well, it'll be in a paddock somewhere. I'm just going to go into the petrol station and see if I can find out who owns the property where we think it's located. Uh, well, that was a big fat waste of time. Once I managed to drag the service attendant away from his mobile phone, I don't know nothing. Oh, and Then I thought I'd have to go in and to a polling booth to find somebody. But no, there's a general store here, so we'll see what we can find inside. Oh, that's better for a terrible moment there. I thought I was going to have to go into a polling booth. Oh, I thought I was free of having to go into polling booths, but luckily not necessary today because I went into the local shop instead and the nice lady told me where to go. I'm apparently looking for someone named Leanne who's out on the Borough Road. And now I'm going to head out there and see whether she's there and whether she minds me wandering around her paddocks looking for the balloon. Hope so. Uh, well there you go I just found uh, Michelle who's from a nearby property and she's shown me on the map, in fact pointed off on a little region line just off in the distance where we're going to find the balloon. It's quite rugged and I'll have to walk around and it's among the trees, erosion gullies, reasonably rough sort of country but good all day and wander around and yeah so I'm gonna follow her in the car and we'll be there in a moment. Oh, the other funny thing is that uh, husband, Michael, I was explaining to him about the balloon, and and he said, oh, yeah, we get them out here all the time with the balloons. Oh, oh, really? I thought it would be a real novelty, but no, he says he picked one up only last week. Uh, But anyway, I was going to record some audio as I wander around the paddock, but the wind out here is just bloody atrocious. In fact all the maps and stuff and bits of paper had it all prepared. It just pissed off and blew across the paddock and had to chase after them. Very annoying. So who, whose property is this? Uh, this belongs to Waterholes Proprietary Limited. And we're just heading up the ridge line and it's pretty uh, reasonably rough. Lots of erosion gullies, old willow trees lying down, lots of broken fences. <laughs> we're just kind of trundling across the paddock uh, yeah, your husband Michael said he's seen quite a few balloons around here he picks yeah, them up look, occasionally
3: yeah over the years we've collected a lot of the remains of weather balloons that have you know for whatever reason seem to come down here and uh, so we quite often find the foil bottoms to the weather balloons around
0: the paddocks uh, short pause while we negotiate this gully. I see what you mean by w- I wasn't going to take my little <laughs> my little uh, Peugeot along this bit. So the, the Bureau of Meteorology must be launching them somewhere west of here, I guess. Well,
3: yeah, I don't know where they launched them, but um, yeah, they seem to... must be whether it's a distance or uh, whether it's just weather conditions that bring them this way or uh, whether it's a distance that they last, I'm not really sure, but it's, um, yeah, they're not uncommon.
0: Oh, well, blow me down, we're driving around the paddock and there it is right there lying on the ground. (laughs) And it's not even very big, we're almost right on top of it. Oh, well, let's go and pick it up annoying, but... Uh, <laughs> well, there you go, one shredded balloon. Yeah. Yeah, like it's kind of a pink...
1: Yeah, that's the same as the it's weather balloon.
0: So. It's a bit faded being in the sun, and the bubble wrap plastic package dangling off the end.
1: But it really does...
0: Quite well, you know, to be up that high and in the weather for what two weeks since no, it was little... no, no. The actual flight time I think was only like a day or so.
1: Oh right.
0: But it's been on the ground for two, two or three weeks. So.
1: Oh okay. Ha!
0: Huh. Well, I'll be blow. That was just way too easy. We drove up and there it was right in front of us. <laughs> Beautiful. Oh well, here we go. And there you go. There was the balloon. We drove across the paddock and it was sitting right there in front of us. I couldn't believe it. Well, I've now got the balloon at home. And a funny thing happened on the way home. I had the thing in the car and we have been out there uh, uh, somewhere between Michelago and Borough and I'm listening to an AM radio station and I could hear this occasional beep. And I'm thinking, I wonder what that noise is. It could have been that the tracking device on the bottom of the balloon which was now in the car was still transmitting its GPS location. I don't know, I'll find out about that. So we'll put the link to the tracking site where you can follow the the way this balloon travelled up on our Facebook website and you can have a look and see for yourself where the balloon went. Lots of fun. Now I'm going to go back to John Sarkissian, who, I, as I said, I interviewed him last weekend out at Parks Observatory, and after that initial interview we went inside and he showed us around the console, lots of buttons, and a historic place because this is where the moon landing was monitored and tracked. And he told me lots of really interesting stories about the tapes that they're trying to find that were recorded during the moon landing, the TV tapes. The really funny thing is the way that they actually recorded, they, the, the way they transmitted the video is that uh, it's, it's quite complicated. The moon lander didn't have the capacity to send the high bandwidth signals of TV back to Earth, so they sent it in a compressed form and there's lots of complicated processing involved in order to get it down here. And then the Australian television standard is different to the US standard. I think it's PAL here and was NTSC or something over there in the United States. Well, uh, (laughs) guess how they did the conversion? Well, they had a television set up playing the Australian version and they had a video camera zoomed in on the uh, video monitor and from there they recorded and broadcast the American version. But the high definition or the higher definition ver- version of the video tapes is sitting on magnetic tape somewhere, we hope. And John Sarkissian has been out looking for it and so far he hasn't found it, but he does have one theory and hopefully he will find it because it's historic stuff. Anyway, here's myself and John Sarkissian at Parks Observatory on 2X. Okay, so so we're in, the, in this little control room. There's lots of computers around, lots of technical information sitting on those computer screens. Uh,
2: where are we, John? Okay, well, um, this room is what we refer to as the new control room. We moved everything down here in um, early 1997. It's a much more quiet, more comfortable work environment. Um, and up until a few weeks ago, this is where the, the bulk of the observing is to be performed, and the astronomers visited the observatory they would work from here. So the, the computer screens you can see, here um, is where we ran all the observing software the processing software and so on allows us to mo- allowed us to monitor the, the status of the various systems of the telescope and um, it's very quiet now because um, a few weeks ago we switched to, to full remote observing and so astronomers are no longer required to, to visit the observatory they can observe from anywhere so so it's a little sad to see it so quiet but it's just it, but it's an indication of, of, of the, the progress we're making. So
0: in fact we're the only people in the room and all those people who are controlling
2: it are geographically somewhere else. That's right. If we were, if we were observing the, we could actually watch um, the, the astronomers um, moving the telescope about. We'd be able to see the software so if anything were to go wrong we can, we can take over and control it ourselves. We also have here a big um, video screen that allows us to to communicate with astronomers from our science operations centre in our um, Sydney headquarters. And so it's um, we, we try and and, and maintain that, that close contact with the observers as much as as much as we can.
0: Uh, so physically, where might they be right now? If someone's
2: observing, could they be anywhere on the planet? That's right. Um, anywhere they have um, reasonable internet access, they should be able to to control the telescope. But we have a, what we call a science operations centre in our Sydney headquarters, where we um, have a, another similar room there with other computer monitors, and it perfectly mirrors what you see here. So what. Thank <laughs> you. So, when they're observing there, we can monitor and see that everything's going well. And if anything were to happen, we'll be able to, to step in and, and, and help them out and, and so on. Do, do you feel you missed the direct personal interaction because it's now over the internet? Yeah, I mean, one of the, the, the fun parts of the job was always interacting with the astronomers, you know, when they visit. Many of them I consider personal friends. And so we'll be seeing less of them, but um, astronomers will still be able to come here to do special observations and so on. Um, so we won't be entirely out of contact in, in the future, but there'll just be less of, of what we've been doing in the past. Okay, so looking at these computer monitors around
0: us, are there any that are particularly interesting that you might want to point out some feature, or is it all
2: just really deep technical stuff? Yeah, um, um, yeah there are mainly very technical equipment, but there's one monitor here which which basically uh, what, we, what we call the SHOTEL monitor, and it, and it does just that. It shows us what the telescope's doing, so we can see whether it's tracking or if it's stowed or um, what object on the sky it's tracking and um, what receivers they're using. We also have a winds winds monitor there. Um, perhaps the the greatest environmental factor that limits our observations is not cloud as as in optical astronomy which will block the, the, the starlight and so on. It's a- actually the wind because um, you can think of the, the Parkes telescope as a glorified umbrella and just like a normal umbrella when the wind blows it tends to want to do things that we don 't want it to do like blow away, and so when, it, when the winds reach a certain, certain critical speed, the control system if it considers the situation to be unsafe to continue, it will just automatically stop the observation and drive the telescope up to the zenith, which is pointing up which is the safe position and we just wait out the wind and wait for it to, to the wind to, to die down and when it's back to the safe wind speeds we'll then, we can then resume the observation J- Just as long as it doesn't pop inside out like
0: a real umbrella, so pointing straight up at the zenith, that's the, the stable position yeah.
1: um, But
0: there's actually a story with the Apollo landing mission here where there were really strong winds as you were trying
2: to pick up the signal from the spacecraft, is that right? That's right um, In um, July 1969 it was winter here, so wind winter is usually the the quiet months, you know, where the winds are usually very, very steady and and low. It's the summer where we have the high winds with the thermals and so on, where you have storms and very high winds. And so, but for Apollo 11 in July, um, the dish was fully tipped over waiting for the moon to rise. Um, The telescope's horizon is 30 degrees above the true horizon. So if it had been a nice clear day, we would have seen the moon in the sky, but it wasn't quite high enough for us to to track the moon. But what it was fully tipped over. The, dish, the edge of the dish is only about a metre off the ground. You can actually step up onto it and go for a ride. But being fully tipped over, it's at its most vulnerable, of course, and about 20 minutes or so before the, the, the moonwalk was to begin, a violent wind squall struck the telescope, and two gusts of wind over 110 kilometres an hour struck the telescope and caused the, the dish to slam back against its zenith axis pinions and um, caused the sh- tower to shudder and sway and created quite a bit of concern in the tower. But John Bolton, who was the director of the observatory at the time, a very legendary figure in radio astronomy, held his nerve, told his men to stay on it, and just as the um, buzz Aldrin switched on the TV cameras, the winds abated and the moon moved into the field of view of the Park Telescope, and we were able to receive the pictures simultaneously with our colleagues at Honeysuckle Creek near Canberra and also at the 64-metre antenna at Gold in California and so yeah I like to tell people that you know the astronauts may very well have been on the sea of tranquility on the moon but it was well and truly the ocean of storms here at parks on the day um, very few people actually knew about it about the situation here but um, and in fact John Bolton later remarked um, that um, the highest wind speeds recorded at parks during the first 10 years of the telescope's operation were just minutes before the Apollo 11 moonwalk and and, um, and with the dish fully tipped over to boot. So normally, you know, we're the telescope stowed and safe, waiting for the winds to die down well before he gets to those speeds. But being a critical situation with people's lives at risk and, our, and in the commitment to, to NASA to track the, the lunar module on the lunar surface, he stayed on it. And um, and um, shortly afterward, the winds did abate, and they were able to continue tracking the moon for well over five hours before until it set. Well, and what a massively historical
0: occasion it was! So, yeah, it, really important that we managed to capture those moments. And there you go. That was John Sarkissian and I was interviewing him in at the Parks Observatory last weekend. And as I say, he was one of the guys who was the the technical script consultant for the movie the dish and he told us after that interview that he did a lot of calculations and he knew that on a whiteboard or on a blackboard rather at some point that they would be visible in a scene in the movie and he wanted to make ex- damn sure that they were actually correct because in the movie *Good Will Hunting*, if you remember the janitor, who he was, character writes, uh, it completes the professor's equations on the blackboard, and somebody freeze-framed the movie and then checked the co- the equations to see if they were correct. And John said that he wanted to be co- uh, quite sure that there were no mistakes in anything that he had transmitted or, uh, sorry, shown on the movie *The Dish*. So we're going to do a little change of topic now, I think we might go on to the bionic eye and last weekend I was out at the, oh the week, last week rather, I was out at the Nicta Labs and I met a guy named Nick Barnes who is a researcher on the bionic eye. Now remember that the bionic eye has lots of different components, it's got parts that sit inside the eye, there's the biological components and it has to tap into the optic nerve but it also has some fairly grunty computer processing sitting on the front of it and so the optical sensors pick up the signal from the cameras and it has to process it so that the people who are wearing the bionic eye can actually try and make some sense of the visual scene. So here now is Nick Barnes and myself talking about the bionic eye at NICTA. All right. Well, I'd like you to imagine a world where you can't see and it's hard for those of us with good eyes to imagine exactly what that would be like but if you walk around a room and close your eyes I think it'd be pretty hard to navigate the world without the ability to see. Now there are people in Australia who are researching how to bring a vision to people who otherwise wouldn't have it. And I'm interviewing now Associate Professor Nick Barnes, who's from NICTA and Bionic Vision Australia. And Nick, you've been talking tonight about the bionic eye. What are the main challenges that you face in that sort of device? Okay, so for us, the challenges that
3: we're addressing in terms of vision processing are bionic vision... um, prosthetic vision as it stands has a reduced um, visual resolution compared with what you see in normal vision and a reduced ability to see contrast in an image Um, and so we're trying to develop vision processing so um, computer processing that takes in images and image streams and turns them into um, streams that could go on an electrode array, streams of stimulation that make sure that the key information of the scene is preserved or key information that the user needs for a particular task they're undertaking, um, given that loss of resolution and of and of contrast.
0: And now, are you getting into the brain primarily by stimulating the retina or the optic nerve at the back of the eye?
3: Yes. So we're part of a consortium called Bionic Vision Australia, and Bionic Vision Australia has developed retinal implants, and retinal implants, uh, these retinal implants are electrically stimulating devices, electrode arrays, that sit on the back of, uh, around the retina, either at the front front of or at the back of the retina and stimulate tissue directly there
0: so you've been during this course of your talk putting up some visual demonstrations of what a person with who who would otherwise be blind what they would see and there are arrays of just light or gray spots can you describe what that looks like if you were to have one of these implanted so what people report
3: seeing they're called phosphine so they're a spot of light that um, is at the same position on the retina and you have a a number of these spots that are associated with electrodes on an electrode array that are implanted. What people report in patient trials seeing is that these, these spots appear in a consistent position and that as stimulation parameters change, they're able to see something that is brighter or more contrasting. They're able to see separate levels of contrast within that and differentiate those levels of contrast and they're able to also bring together those and form an image in some way and an understanding of what's what's at the other end of a camera. Right, but it's not a colour vision in any sense, is it? No, currently the kind of stimulation that you can do tends to stimulate a lot of cells at once and so it's not really possible to to separate out the color vision cells within that so no what they're seeing is is there may be some color perception but it's not really being controlled within what they're seeing
0: Right now, there's some fairly serious computer processing going on at the front of this system. So you could I imagine stick whatever processing power you wanted out it because it's outside the body. So is it the main limitation in how you stimulate the optic nerve? Yeah. So. Increasingly,
3: for areas like computer vision, um, processing is less. computer processing is less of a problem than it used to be. It used to be very difficult to do these kind of image processing operations, whereas now in research in computer vision, we're able to undertake much more ambitious... Algorithms and ways of processing images, and still be able to do them in, in immediately on images. So I'm not. There are still limitations to that, but less so than there are, less so than there were. And so a, a greater limitation in the in the work is really around what can be stimulated through the, the the electrodes at this point, and the resolution and contrast. So what are the priorities for a person who can't see? So there are different priorities depending on, or, or Bionic Vision Australia has conducted focus groups, and those focus groups, the, the people within it identified different priorities according somewhat to what type of retinal impairment they had so people who have have lost some vision but have some vision intact tend to have priorities around things like face recognition and communication. People who have lost their vision entirely or have very very little residual vision now have more difficulties getting around their, their everyday environment and um, walking out in the street etc and for them that kind of ability to move around is a barrier to their independent living and so that tends to be another priority that that group has, that a group who have some intact vision, who are able to move around with that vision are less, less apt to. So we kind of see priorities around those areas of these sorts of acuity tasks like reading and face recognition and seeing facial expression and orientation and mobility.
0: Now, now, when we watch science fiction movies, the implants are always better than the real thing. H- how long do you think it might be if you want to really look way out there before we get a device that is at least comparable to natural vision, or maybe even at some stage exceeds human vision in some way? Some way. Um, for... I
3: mean, one of the intrinsic limitations that you have in blindness is that there is actual residual damage to retinal material. And so whatever stimulation you're able to do, there is still that residual damage to the system, and so that can't be overcome by necessarily um, stimulation. I would expect that over the the next 10 years or so we'll see retinal implants that are able to help people in their, their tasks and assist people to live more independently via, via the sorts of tasks they're concerned with. I think the, the, the gap... Currently, to going to full vision or better than human vision I think is is large and a difficult one and I think there's many steps to to recovering that.
0: So a a long a long way out is the short answer I think. Yes. (laughs) All right well Associate Professor Nick Barnes it's a great privilege to talk to you and for all those people who suffer some sort of sensory loss uh, it's really important. work. thank you for your time. Okay thanks a lot. Yes, and as I say, Professor Nick Barnes there, who I interviewed a couple of weeks ago out at uh, NICTA Labs. Well, there's a couple more this day in science things going on right now. There's the anniversary today of solar energy, the first solar building, the Bridges and Paxton office building in Albuquerque. It was the first commercial building to be heated by the sun's energy. Guess when that was? 1957 that's how far back this idea goes and i think the availability of cheap energy has made us very slow very lazy to pursue the uh, real possibilities of solar energy So the building was subsequently listed on the National Register of Historic Places as somewhere of exceptional importance in the area of engineering because it was an early solar-heated commercial building and the equipment which survived largely intact. Today is also the anniversary of shredded wheat. How about that? I like these quirky, this day in science ones. 1893, Henry, get this, Henry Perky. Of Colorado and William Ford patented the pillow shaped shredded wheat and the product was composed of whole wheat which had been boiled partially dried then drawn and pressed out into thin shreds and baked and it was shown at the World's Columbian Expo in 1893 Chicago Illinois. We've also got a couple of uh, births this day this is uh, Lorenz Oken, the, the German naturalist who offered the evolutionary ideas and stimulated comparative anatomy. And I like him because he theorised incorrectly that the skull was a modified form of the vertebrae. And in a publication called Die Zeigung, pardon my German, he discussed the infusoria, elementary units of living organism into which all flesh can be broken down high animals, he proposed, consisted of constituent animicules. And animicules was the term that uh, who was the guy who used the tele- the microscope to view little things swimming around in water? He called them animicules. And he said that entities, whether plants or animals, became organisms by the fusion of these primal animals. And those elements are individually Uh, combined to create a higher entity. Well that's kind of an interesting thing because in a couple of weeks time we're going to be interviewing live and welcoming back to Fuzzy Logic Professor Charlie Lineweaver who's one of my favourite guests and he and Paul Davies have a theory about the origin of cancer and that theory suggests that perhaps cancer is a reversion of behaviour of cells to their time in evolution when they weren't in your body and when they go nuts and reproduce like crazy that what they're really doing is re-triggering that old behavior so we'll be talking to charlie and also charlie's going to bring his phd student in and we'll be discussing a thing called bodes law that's b-o-d-e-s and bodes law do you remember this idea of the harmonics of the spheres, that the planets were spaced a certain distance from the Sun according to some sort of harmonic principle. Well now we know about a few extrasolar planets, I think there's 400 and something confirmed and there's something like a thousand candidates. Well they're finding that this more seems to apply to those planetary systems. So we'll be discussing that and it's never a dull moment when Charlie Lowenweaver comes on to Fuzzy Logic. Now in today's Canberra Times we've got our Ask Fuzzy column and today's question was does cloud seeding actually work? And so I have a response for the Snowy Hydro Corporation and they've been doing cloud seeding program for quite a while now and measuring the results, seeing what happens when they push silver iodide crystals up into the atmosphere as a way of triggering rain. So that's in today's Canberra Times and you can send your own Ask Fuzzy question to at Zoho.com. We like to get your questions. And coming up we uh, think we might be doing a panel, another panel after our Cyborgs panel the other day out at uh, the John Curtin Medical School and this one's on the subject of MOOC which is M-O-O-C, Massive Online Courses, and it's about learning on the internet. It's promised to be a fascinating subject, lots of different opinions on that one. Well, time to say goodbye now, and thanks for your company this morning. Plenty more coming up on Fuzzy Logic. I hope you enjoy the beautiful, sunny, springish kind of Canberra Day.
2: Catch you later.